0: All right then, fulfillment process is where we left off when we were last together. And as has been our custom, as we start talking about these different processes, we always uh, begin by talking about the different organizational levels, the organizational data that comes into play. And uh, these are uh, the organizational data elements that are relevant for us in the fulfillment process. Uh, Many of these are things we've talked about before, sales organization, distribution channel division, sales area, uh, those are things that we have touched on before. Some of the things that I want us to spend a little bit more time on today is uh, some things that we have not talked about to this point, but I think where we will pick up today is here on uh, my slide number eight talking about sales area. And recall that a sales area is a unique combination of a sales organization, a distribution channel, and, and a division, and so uh, on this particular slide that we are looking at here, as far as the number and, and different sales areas that, that we are looking at, um, we have um, this one right here, which incorpor- incorporates sales organization S100 and the retail distribution channel and toys and then it looks like we have S100 Retail and games as a second one and then a third one S100 Retail Clothes So basically, for each of these three different divisions, uh, sales organization S100 uh, deals with that in the retail channel. When we move to the internet, uh, sales organization S100 notice only deals with, and my lines are overlapping here, maybe I'll change to a different color, make it a little bit clearer. Um, In the context of internet, uh, S100, Uh, deals on the internet with toys and S100 deals on the internet with games but notice there is no line associated with S100 internet and clothes and so they are not empowered to sell clothes on the internet as a matter of fact if you really look at the way the lines are drawn here it, it looks like no one is empowered to sell clothes on the internet so apparently uh, we've decided as a company we only want to sell toys and games online and, and not clothing in the area of home, Wholesale S100, and I'll switch to another color here to try and differentiate this, although we've already got a lot of overlapping lines here, S100 wholesales close. So they do not have the authority to wholesale toys or wholesale games, but they do have the authority to wholesale clothes. And then inside of this company code 100 for sales organization 200, uh, they can retail toys, They can retail games, but they can only wholesale games. They cannot wholesale toys, and they have no ability whatsoever to deal with things on the internet. And so this is an example of ways that we might structure sales areas. Now, before we forge ahead, um, let's talk about this a little bit more because the significance of this uh, may not be readily apparent why do we have this? I mean clearly this is a fairly complex structure The idea of saying, okay, we're going to define sales organizations and we're going to define distribution channels and we're going to define divisions and we are going to uh, put them together in these sales areas. And as we talked about previously and undoubtedly, as we will mention again a couple of times in our ongoing discussion, every time we make a sale, so every sales order that goes into our system will have a specific sales area designated. So it will say, for example, that this sale is associated with S100 internet games. And so no sales order can go into the system without having each of these three things assigned to it. So the question that I have for you is, why? What, what, what's the utility of this? Ah, okay. So one of the things that it does for us is it allows for tracking, Uh, and I, I like the other thing that you said with that, give credit, and we're not talking about credit in terms of credit cards and credit lines and things like that, but we're talking credit as in, uh, we keep track of what people do and we can say, hey great, you know your uh, sales on the internet have been better than this other uh, sales organization's sales on the internet. Or it gives us a way, well let me not go any further here, it allows us to track. And there may be other ideas that, that That offshoot from that. Uh, What else does it let us do? I I wrote down five things and I don't know that my list is is exhaustive, but uh, so if tracking slash giving credit is one, what other things come into play here? Ah, okay, that's not on my list, but it's a very good one in the context of cost accounting. Some of this might be very relevant. For sure, One of the things that we will be concerned about in cost accounting or even in financial accounting, this plays out as well, is the expenses that we incurred, the effort that we put into gaining these sales. For example, um, who knows what this particular company sells that I have uh, colored all over here for the last few moments, but let's assume it's, it's well, it's toys, games, and clothes. We'll just leave it as generic as that. And so maybe they start running a lot of television advertisements that focus on uh, their toy products. And so they've invested a lot of money in doing that. They would certainly hope that that their performance in the retail channel for that particular set of products would would go up. So, tracking, yes, but also tracking in comparison to what we've had to spend or invest, whichever term you like to use there, uh, to actually get the sales. What else? Determining Determining income. What do you mean by determining income? Okay, I'm going to put down here comparison and in particular what you noted, and I don't know why my pen is being all flaky here income tracking Okay, someone else give us another item to add to this list there are still many, many more things. Just think about it real practically. What about logistics? Ah, uh, okay. So what you're calling logistics based on what you just said. If I'm, if I'm understanding you correctly, which I might not be, but if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're kind of talking about is, is issues related to authority. You know, who is empowered to do what? What sales organization is empowered to sell clothes? Uh, what sales organization is empowered to sell on the internet? Uh, issues related to authority may be embodied in the assignment of sales area. Um, what else? Keep in mind we're talking about selling, not buying, so I'm trying to I don't know that I fully. Not saying your your idea isn't correct, but I'm not sure that I fully understand it. Inventory control, making sure you have the right amount of inventory in your wholesale because you're going to have shipments that are going out there. Um, making sure you have the right amount of inventory going to your retail locations because it's based on what sales are. Okay. I'll buy that I think that's kind of the idea you were driving at inventory management could come into play here uh, particularly if we're thinking of this in terms of like we observed before a lot of times sales organizations are are regionally defined and so we think of positioning products in the west positioning products in the north the south and so on I'll buy that We're still missing a couple really big ones, including ones that you did in the context of your lab work. What are some of the key issues that companies have as decision points in the selling process? Don't overcomplicate this. Pricing! Pricing is a key aspect of this. Who gets to make pricing decisions and what will the prices be? The prices for selling games on the internet will be an entirely different pricing schedule than selling games through the retail distribution channel. And so, pricing definitely comes into play here. And I'll go ahead and spot you another thing that goes with this, terms of sale. It may well be, for example, that all of our internet and retail sales are paid for essentially before we ship the item to the customer. But wholesale sales, we might extend credit terms for. And so terms of sale might be very different in terms of, no pun intended, uh, the logistics of actually of actually getting payment in. Uh, let me look at my last uh, list here. Um, that's kind of the same thing as that. Uh, so this these are the. These are uh, my five things plus two things that you added here Um, but I would definitely say that of this set the biggest fall into the domain of being able to keep track of things for the sake of reporting and authority. Who has authority over what? Who gets to set our pricing structure for selling games on the internet? who gets to set our prices for, if one of these is east and west, for wholesaling games on the west coast of the United States. So these sales areas are very, very critical for a a wide variety of reasons. And so that's why they are such a key organizational data element for us in terms of selling. Um, Plants. Now we talked about plants before, in the context of the purchasing process because we talked about the idea of a receiving plant here in this section we are talking about uh, a delivering plant and the idea here is that we might see multiple sales organizations in one company code we know that every plant belongs to just one company code for the reasons of financial accounting but A company code may have many sales organizations, so in fact a plant may fulfill orders for multiple sales organizations in a given company code. And a given plant might service multiple distribution channels. Clearly they're going to have to service at least one distribution channel because that has to be part of a sales area, which is key in actually getting orders in the hands of customers. In the context of manufacturing, a plant is where we make things. In the context of receiving, uh, or excuse me, in purchasing, a plant is where we have things shipped. In the context of sales and distribution, a plant is where goods or services are distributed or rendered. So we might also call these, in other terminology, uh, a distribution center. So when Walmart builds a distribution center in Tennessee to service a variety of Walmart stores in the Tennessee area, that distribution center in terms of SAP ERP would be called the plant and so they would fill that plant up with merchandise and it would then ship things out to individual stores.
1: Now, based
0: on putting the facts together that we've just mentioned, uh, let's talk about that scenario. I'm going to draw a very, very realistic diagram here for the state of Tennessee. And so uh, for the state of Tennessee, maybe Walmart puts a distribution center here and they put a distribution center here and, and they put a distribution center here. So they actually have in, in proper terminology here we have plant one, plant two, and, and plant three. So if we bring all of the things that we've been talking about together plant one, plant two, and plant three could be dealing with different company codes or they could be reporting to the same company code. We, we have no way to know. Plant one, two, and three could all deal with multiple sales organizations, or there may in fact just be one sales organization that, that works through these plants. There's lots of different ways that, that we could combine this. One thing to be aware of, just as a point of fact, and I do not want to overcomplicate things, but I do want to make you aware that this is possible, you probably have been thinking in terms of a plant being a physical building. And that's not a wrong idea and in fact in many cases it does play out that way but if this second square that I have drawn on the screen actually represents one building as we're looking at it from satellite view, we could in this one building actually partition this into two logically different operations and this could be plant one and this could be plant two now the key is those two different halves of this building would truly have to operate independently of one another but we are allowed, if operational necessities require it, to have one building actually be more than one plant. While that might not be super common, we might see, in fact, though, for some organizations, they have a plot of land, which they own and which is fenced and otherwise controlled and in that plot of land there are three different buildings and and each of those buildings is a different plant that may report to Uh, one company code or each of them may report to separate company codes. So as long as we keep this straight in terms of financial accounting, because that's going to be the key element here, because we can't have employees for company code 1 doing something for company code 2 and not account for that properly in the context of financial accounting. As long as we keep things truly segregated here and separate, then we can get away uh, with doing things like that. Um, the, yes, sir. Um, in the context of Walmart, okay, we would have three distribution centers, but then we have hundreds of stores. Each store would be its own company code, but then- the I don't think each store would be its own company code because you don't report taxes on an individual store level, at least not to the IRS. Um, and I would imagine, although I can't speak authoritatively, that all of Walmart just does one tax return. So I would think that probably the stores would also be classified as a plant because a plant is where goods or services are distributed or rendered. So what we would call a store would probably be actually classified as a plant in this context. Um I'd, you could think of it that way when you draw a picture, but in terms of the actual logic of this, you know, I might want to call this even things like, uh, You know, P3A and P3B, you know, obviously if you've ever worked in retail, you know this, that stores have numbers and a lot of times there's numbering schemes and such. They'd all be plants, but if you want to think of them in terms of this plant as this relationship with this other plant, there's nothing to stop you from thinking of it that way, but it wouldn't be part of the formal hierarchy. Yes, sir. can i yeah i well see that's the other interesting thing can multiple buildings be considered one plant and i'm i'm pretty sure the answer to that is yes you know this could all be plant 1 and we view everything at this one facility as a single plant depends on how we configure it how we want to do this you know realizing that if i if i count all of this as one plant then that means that it reports to one company code and maybe that makes sense or maybe it doesn't. So yeah, what I really, and that's a good example of what I want us to get away from is thinking of a plant as being a single building. A plant could actually be multiple buildings, a plant could be a part of a building, the key is we have to make sure that there is true separation of activities so that uh, our financial accounting is done properly. Yes, sir? Now each plant is dealing with one company code. Each plant deals with one company code. That's correct. I kind of heard you say that each plant can deal with multiple company codes. No. Um, in this case right here, plant one could deal with company code 1 and plant 2 could deal with company code 2 but there's no relationship between plant 1 and company code 2 or plant 2 and company code 1 because remember our organizational hierarchy rules were we could have as many company codes as we need and a company code can have as many plants as they need but every plant just belongs to a single company code and so that's the overall rule of the structure here and the reason for that just traces back to financial accounting basically uh, a plant is not really going to be taking in money they're going to be distributing products, they're going to be incurring a lot of costs, and so some company code is going to be on the hook for all of that. Okay. Good questions. Um, shipping point. Uh, a shipping point, pretty logical definition here, this is a point from which we send out outbound deliveries. A- and so, logically speaking, um, this could be things like a loading dock which undoubtedly you have seen and in fact we have a loading dock that probably most of you walk across to get into this building uh, from when this was actually the university library and so we have a loading dock a place that trucks can pull up to it it could be a mail room could actually be a rail depot um, or it, it could just be a group of employees that are you know, the ones who handle the expedited orders. You know, maybe for example, most of our stuff goes out the loading dock, but if we need to ship something via overnight courier, then we take it to Sue, who works at a particular desk. And so, in that context, if Sue is the person who always handles that, Sue is a shipping point. So. Uh, she may not like that terminology being associated with her, but in terms of uh, our ERP terminology, wherever we think of as a logical place from where outbound deliveries are disseminated, that is a shipping point. Now, Every plant must have at least one shipping point. Otherwise we have a plant that's kind of like a roach motel where stuff can come in and and nothing ever leaves, which is obviously not something that is practical. So every plant has to have at least one shipping point. I I might've told you, um, I recently read a book that I highly recommend um, called The Girls of Atomic City. And it was about Oak Ridge National Laboratories and when they were founded and about all of the ladies really from all across the United States that converged there to run that facility because a lot of the men were off to war. And it tells the story of that. And uh, Oak Ridge, at the time Oak Ridge National Laboratories was built, And in fact, it wasn't called Oak Ridge National Laboratories back then, it was called, uh, there was X10, Y12, and I forget, uh, K25, I think were the three different facilities. But one reason why local people in the area knew that something weird was going on is because train loads of stuff kept being brought in and nothing ever left. They were like, what's going on here? We never see anything leaving. And all kinds of weird rumors started about You know, it being a a space alien depot and all kinds of bizarre stuff like that. So that just came to my mind because of this idea of the purpose of a plant is for stuff to come in and stuff to leave. And so every plant has to have at least one shipping point designated and now this is something that's an unusual rule you could have one shipping point that is shared by many plants and I've got a picture of this on the next slide but let me just explain and it kind of goes nicely with the example I had a moment ago maybe my company owns this plot of land that we are looking at from a um, satellite view and here's plant one and here's plant two and here's plant three and running through our property is uh, railroad tracks and there's a little building right here that is responsible for putting stuff onto rail cars and and loading it onto the trains and things like that and so this facility would be designated as a shipping point and in fact all three of these plants could use that as their shipping point. So a shipping point can be shared but every plant has to have at least one shipping point. You see this for example if you go to Amazon and you place an order and they ask you do you want us to send it to you standard or do you want some kind of expedited delivery well one way we can handle that is in a given plant we could basically have two different locations one which accumulated all the items for standard delivery one which accumulates all of the items for expedited delivery and we get it to that location and then it leaves the plant from from that facility so we could have a shipping point uh, as you see illustrated here that's actually shared by multiple locations this is the Idea of the kind of bird's-eye view um, that I drew by hand here's a building here's another building here's another building that's actually two different plants so illustrated on this slide we have three different buildings and four different plants but they're all sharing this same shipping point because that just makes sense that's where the loading dock perhaps is and so everything here just maybe gets driven over and brought to this facility for the sake of loading it on to outbound trucks for for shipping and of course we can have as many shipping points as we need. Uh, here's three different plants existing in three different buildings and it just so happens that plant one and plant three both have uh, bays and other things of that sort to accommodate trucks and so that's where there are two normal shipping points there and then plant three is where the express shipping point is. So this now is is something that if we We really start thinking about this in more depth you know this plant could belong to company code 1 this plant could belong to company code 2 this plant could belong to company code 3 and it could well be that this plant therefore ships out of this shipping point so we definitely don't want company code 3 or plant 3 to be on the hook for paying for that so the shipping point here is just a physical location, but the costs incurred and other things of that sort would ultimately trace back to the individual company codes that the shipment is, is on behalf of. It's not like company code three here is on the hook for paying for all of our overnight shipping just because the express shipping point sits in, in their particular facility everything you wanted to know about shipping points and more. I'm sure we have just talked about, but are there any questions about this? Okay, let's talk about credit control errors. This is to me uh, definitely a little bit more interesting because it gets to more of a uh, strategic type set of decisions that a a company might make. I don't know if I've told you this before, I know I've mentioned it in some classes, but I don't know if I have not here. Uh, Many, many, many years ago, uh, during the summer, I used to take on odd jobs when I wasn't teaching, and one of the things I did is work for a collections department of a company. And for actually two summers, I, I worked in a collections department. It was a job that I, Never ever ever hope to do again. Um, probably it's a little bit better than just standard telemarketing, although you spend a lot of time on the phone. But instead of calling people up and saying, Hey, would you like to buy a toaster? I was calling up companies and saying, Hey, you owe us $25,000. We really want that. When will you send us the money? And so Um, kind of an interesting experience and so I've done a lot of things for companies in this domain of credit control and and, um, it's it's really actually a lot of it's rather fascinating so the idea behind a credit control area is as a company we will sell to other companies on credit That's kind of the default assumption. Now, you may have a company that says, no, 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 we only sell if people pay up front. And perhaps if they only sell to end customers like you and me. That might be the way things work. But if a company sells to another company, it's pretty much expected in the industry that we are going to extend payment terms to them, which means we're going to extend credit. And if we don't do that, well, if we don't do that, what will, what will potentially happen? Yeah, people won't buy from us because they want credit terms and in fact a lot of businesses are are kind of finely tuned to take advantage of that Walmart is rather famous by insisting that their suppliers sell to them with extended payment terms in some cases Walmart says we want 90 days to pay and then what Walmart will do is they'll buy stuff they'll sell it almost immediately So before the 90 days is up, they've already sold everything they bought from you and have the money as a result from that. And then on day, you know, 89 or 90 or because they're Walmart, 110 or 120, they'll actually send you payment and so they kind of take advantage of uh, those kinds of opportunities. But credit granting is a key uh, area in which companies can get themselves in trouble. And so the role of a credit control area is to make decisions about granting a customer credit. And this is another thing that I did in the organization that I worked for. So, So how does this work? Company calls you up and says, we would like to start doing business with you. Will you extend us credit terms? Well, every company that does business where they extend credit terms, they have the ability to run credit checks. Just like a car dealership runs a credit check on you or me before they extend us credit for the purchase of an automobile, companies have credit reports. And so they run a credit report, they find out about the company, they find out about their payment history, and they say, based on that, we will grant you X dollars worth of credit. Sometimes companies are happy with that. Sometimes you'll say, we can sell to you and we will grant you credit up to $25,000. And they'll come back and say, well, we wanted to place a $40,000 order. Will you take that from us on credit? And sometimes you say, okay sure we'll sell to you on credit for forty thousand dollars or sometimes you say tell you what we'll split the difference with you um you want forty thousand dollars we're granting you credit for twenty five thousand send us seven thousand dollars and we'll release the order and sell you the rest on credit so a lot of times there's a lot of kind of negotiation and and horse trading goes on here because granting credit is all about exposure, and it's all about risk. Because anytime you sell to a company on credit, you run the risk that they won't pay. Now if it's a hundred dollar order your company might say, uh, you know, we expect them to pay, but if they don't pay it's not the end of the world. But if your company has Ten million dollars in annual revenue and somebody calls up and says I want to place a $250,000 order now all of a sudden do you grant them credit sufficient for that order or not? First of all you don't want to turn down the order because it's a really nice size order but the other side of that is if you fulfill that order and then never get paid that could really put your company in financial peril walmart is an organization that um, a lot of people do not think highly of other people really don't have a position one way or the other but there have been numerous uh, articles written about what walmart will do many times is they will go to a company and the classic example of this i read was related to pickles and walmart wanted to sell pickles in their store and so they went to a pickle manufacturer and said "Um, we really like your pickles we'd like you you know we'd like to start selling your pickles in our store um we'd like to place a five you know i'm going to make up the numbers here because i don't remember we'd like to place a five million dollar order with you for pickles and immediately everybody there at the pickle factory that day was real excited because five million dollar order for Walmart we're all going to be getting Christmas bonuses this year that's tremendous and so they get excited about placing the Walmart you know fulfilling the Walmart order and all of a sudden they realize oh that means we've got to make a whole bunch of pickles which now means maybe they have to buy new equipment maybe they have to expand to a new facility but they gear up because they really like the idea of selling to Walmart so they fulfill the first order with Walmart and Walmart comes back to them and says your pickles Pickles sold really well. Our customers really liked your pickles, but you only sell them in eight-ounce and twelve-ounce jars. Um, we like a two-pound big jar, and and the pickle company says, well, we don't really deal with two-pound jars. We don't have equipment that'll let us make two-pound jars. But Walmart says we really want two-pound jars. And so they say, well, they're Walmart, okay, we'll buy the equipment, and so two-pound jars it is. And so we sell them these two-pound jars for, let's just say, and I have no idea what pickles cost, $1.95 wholesale per jar. And so Walmart places a big order from us, and we're all excited because we get the Walmart money. And then Walmart comes back to us and says, we really like your pickles, but the price is too high um we will buy your pickles at a a jar and you say wow we weren't making a lot of money as it was but they're walmart we don't want to cut them off they place really big orders okay $1.85 it is and so walmart sends us a big purchase order and and we're all excited we sell to them on credit and then a few weeks later we get a check and the check is for x number of jars of pickles at a dollar 78 a jar and we call up Walmart and say um, um, your purchase order says a dollar 85 our invoice says a dollar 85 you only paid us a dollar and Walmart says yeah yeah we know um, The $1.85 just proved to be too high a price point, and we're all about giving our customers the lowest price, and so we had to drop our price to actually sell these pickles, and so because of that, we're asking you to kind of split the difference with us and drop the price to $1.78. Now at this point, I have two choices. What are my two choices? Drop Drop the price is choice one, or... Sue Walmart. I have the right to sue Walmart and insist that they pay me $1. eighty-five. In which case do you think I'll ever get another Walmart order again? No. And so Walmart is very well known for doing these kinds of things with suppliers. Now the reason why a lot of people look at this and say, well, this is okay is because Walmart does this to try and pass low prices on to consumers. But in fact, it, there's been numerous articles written about companies that get in this kind of relationship with Walmart. Walmart starts buying from them in huge volume, so they build new facilities, they buy new equipment, they hire employees, they think it's really, really great, and two or three years down the road, they're facing bankruptcy because it costs them a dollar 65 to make a jar of pickles and Walmart says we'll only pay you a dollar 60 and so we're actually losing money every time we sell to Walmart but maybe we still do it because it lets us keep our factories open and our people working and then we sell to other companies at higher prices but we do our sales to Walmart just to help cover some of the overhead even though we're actually in this case selling what to Walmart at a a loss Walmart is very well known for kind of throwing their position around Um, they'll sign You know, an agreement, they'll send a purchase order that specifies that they'll pay in 90 days, and then they'll take 120 or 150 days to pay. And they'll do it because they're Walmart. And their suppliers don't want to tick Walmart off, and so they let them get away with it. It's really kind of an interesting scenario. Well, all of this goes back to the point about granting credit and credit exposure are really key issues for a company because you might think that a company's attitude would be we want all the sales we can possibly have but sometimes like what we see illustrated here sometimes taking every potential sale that walks in the door might not really be in your best interest and particularly if you're having to grant credit to this organization I I, Um, saw this play out here in Johnson City a few weeks ago. I don't know if any of you ever went to the uh, restaurant that's just down the street here, um, Old South. Old South was like in business one day and then out of business the next day, totally unexpected. Based on the newspapers, like the employees showed up for work and there was a sign on the door that says, you know, we're out of business. And uh, when stuff like that happens, all of the different suppliers that sold to Old South on credit, guess what they don't get? They don't get their money because they're gone. You know, they probably filed for bankruptcy and that money is just never going to be, to be paid. So companies have to be very careful in how they grant credit. So there are a couple of different strategies we can employ here. We could have a large organization, and we have one credit control area that's in charge of managing credit. And they do that for all of the different company codes. So once again, imagine our hierarchy here. Here's the client. Here's all the different company codes. And so we're saying there's one credit control area that is going to manage credit across all of those company codes. And so all of the customers in all of the company codes are managed by one credit control area. Now what that essentially means is, is that a company has one credit line across all company codes. Now why is that... A useful practical thing for us it could play it could play into tracking Um, well let's do this let's talk about decentralized and then kind of compare them in decentralized I have more than one credit control area in the enterprise and so each of them can manage credit for one or more company codes. And I'm going to give you some different pictures from your book here in a second, but uh, let me draw a picture, and I'll, I'll draw it here in the slide deck so that we can see this. So give me a second here. Uh, I'm gonna give myself a new slide and then, we'll, and then we'll come back to this in a second. So here's a blank slide. All right, so, so here's, here's the scenario. Here's a client here at the top, so we're all in the same client and I'll just draw um, leaving out credit issues here I have uh, company code 2, company code 3, company code 4, company code 5, and then I I go ahead and add one over here. So I have five different company codes. So the second scenario, the Decentralized. Decentralized, I have more than one credit control area in the enterprise and they may, they can manage credit for one company code or multiple company codes. So, so here's, here's the scenario. Let's assume that company code five has its own credit control area. I'm gonna abbreviate that because I can't use CC because I use that for company code. I'm going to call that uh, credit controls. I guess I should call it CRC for credit control, okay? So company code five has their own credit control area which we'll call credit control uh, area A. And then we have um, credit control area B, which grants credit for both Company Code 3 and Company Code 4. And I need to add more Company Codes here, so let's assume that over here is a set of five different Company Codes and Credit Control Area C grants credit for all of these Company Codes here. Okay. Now let's assume this is a totally realistic scenario. And so here's my company, okay, and, and we'll call this, we are talking about Pickles a second ago. So here's a, a company called Phil's Pickles. And Phil's Pickles calls up company code five and says, we really like the salt that you sell. We would like to buy from you on credit. And so credit control area A looks at Phil's Pickles and their credit report. and figures out how credit worthy they are and says you have a credit line of $50,000. And that credit line is good for buying from Company Code 5. So Phil's Pickles can place an order with us up to $50,000 on credit. Well, Phil's Pickles calls up Company Code 3 and says "Um, we would like to place an order with your company. and." Company code 3 says, okay, let's refer you to our credit credit control area, and they evaluate the situation, and they say, okay, we're going to grant you, uh, they come to a similar conclusion, $45,000 in credit. And then over here, uh, same scenario, contact credit control area C, and they say, we're going to grant you $60,000 in credit. Now the key here is not so much in the scope of the decision, but in the scope of how this plays out in purchasing. Phil's Pickles can run up $50,000 in credit with with company code 5. So they place an order for $49,950, which means they still have $50 left in credit they could place another order with. They contact Company Code 3 and they place an order for $30,000, which we take. They then call up Company Code 4 and say, we would like to place an order with you, and they say, that's great, you have $15,000 worth of credit left. Because this $45,000 assignment is spanning across purchases with both of these Company Codes. So now, they could place an order here for $15,000. Over here, Phil's Pickles calls company code one and they could place you know, a $20,000 order here and they could place a $15,000 order here and they could place a $10,000 order here, but that $60,000 credit line spans across all of these company codes. This is the difference between, in this case right here, very decentralized credit granting and more centralized credit granting. Now, in a truly decentralized system, I might have a client that has 75 company codes and every one of those company codes has its own credit control area. So I have 75 CRCs. That would be a highly decentralized system. A centralized system might be I have a client, I have 75 company codes and maybe just to make it not obvious um, there are three credit control areas that work with those 75 company codes. Now my question for you is what is and let's let's just talk about it um, one at a time, what is the advantage of centralized credit control? And it's illustrated by my diagram here at the top but someone explain to me what it does for us the advantage it gives us. It keeps us from overextending credit credit because remember credit is risk and so we're looking at a customer and saying we think you are worth a risk of X dollars. And that's all we are willing to extend to you in credit across all of our different entities. And that's, that's basically all you're, all you're allowed to spend. If we look at this in a decentralized way, if every company code looks at this customer and says, we think they're worth $50,000, well, we run the risk of them defaulting. Now, I know, I hope, at least none of you would ever do this because there's a point at which this becomes credit card fraud. But you realize that an individual, let's take it out of the realm of companies here, an individual that has a really good credit rating could apply for many, many, many different credit cards simultaneously. And so they get a MasterCard with a $10,000 credit line and American Express with a $15,000 and then a Visa with a $20,000. They get all of these different credit lines and they got those because they had a really good credit rating. So they accrue all of this credit and then they go on a shopping spree and max out every one of these credit cards and then default on paying them and if these companies had known that they were going to do that they wouldn't have granted them the credit that they did so what this does by having centralized credit is it allows us to say we're going to give you so much credit but that's it across the entire scope of our operations what we lose is the ability to have a little bit more of a one-on-one relationship with our customers You know, maybe, for example, these company codes are distributed, the reason why we have three is because these company codes are distributed all across the globe, and so we have a credit control area for North and South America, and we have one for Europe, and we have one for the rest of the world. And so the decisions are made at a centralized office and maybe they don't understand the dynamics of our eastern part of the United States so they frequently make bad decisions. Decentralized gives us the ability to make more localized decisions but it also opens up the risk that a company might overextend itself. These are huge issues for organizations because they do not want companies to go out of business or to default owing them money and it happens all of the time. So the credit control areas give us a way of of managing that risk. Now the way this is actually managed is in the system there's something called a credit management master record which is an extension of the customer master record. Basically, it's a separate record, but it goes with it, and it just captures, this is the credit line you've been assigned. And what most companies will do is they will have very um, defined policies for how customers get higher credit limits and under what situations customers have their credit limits lowered. And it's not uncommon for organizations to have an entire department just focused on decisions related to credit management which is what we're talking about here with the credit control area. Questions about this? Any part of this maybe doesn't make sense, or um, you just have a question related to how how it would play out. Okay, well the pictures that I have here are ones from your textbook and uh, pretty much just go through what I mentioned a moment ago. Here we have an example of centralized credit control where in the client, there are two company codes one credit control area that grants credit for both of them. And so here you have the issue with this is a US company, this is a German company code. And so both of them might think, well, this credit control area doesn't understand the true dynamics of our market, they don't give our customers the credit that they should have, and that costs us sales. So what we could do instead is we could have a North American credit control area and a European credit control area and so now all of a sudden we're becoming more decentralized. We're multiplying credit control areas and we're allowing decisions to be made. But like I said a moment ago, we run the risk of a single company that's buying from us establishing a credit line here and establishing a credit line here and then and then maximizing those things. Here's a fun little piece of trivia that some of you might have run into. I'm not advocating this. Uh, obviously, but this is the way that the mafia used to raise a lot of money. They would they would do what's called busting out a business and. Um, What they would do is oftentimes they'd get some leverage over key personnel in an organization and then go to that organization and basically have that company buy everything they possibly could and maximize all of their credit lines with all of their different suppliers. The mafia would take all of the things that they purchased and actually fence them on the black market or otherwise sell them. And then the business that bought all this stuff would just declare bankruptcy and go out of business. But they would leave behind, in some cases, millions or tens of millions of dollars in unpaid debts and it was a very common way, probably still does happen, I can't speak to that, but at least historically it was one of the ways uh, that mafia, not only here in the United States but around the world, would fund their activity through, through business activity. So companies have to be on the watch for things like that. So this is Organizational data. We finish up organizational data with a story about the Mafia. I don't know that that uh, is a good note to end on, but nonetheless, uh, it is where we find ourselves. Now we can talk about master data. Master data related to the selling process. We've talked about the material master before, so we'll just talk about some of the views that are relevant for us in selling. We have the customer master that we will talk about, the customer material info record. That kind of does some interesting things for us. We've talked already about prices. So we have the condition master, the output master, and then a moment ago we just made reference to the credit management master record. So some of this we'll be able to blitz through pretty quickly, and then some of it warrants a little bit more explanation, and so we'll take time to do that. Um, Material Master things that are relevant for us in the selling process. Basic data is really important because basic data has basic product information like the name of the product and, and the weight of the product and the dimensions of the product and things like that, which would be very important to us in selling because we might need to know it, for example, to quote shipping rates and, and other things of that sort. The sales view in the material master is where the sales organization is defined. And so what you're going to have is you're going to have a material master that will have sales views that are specific to a sales organization and a distribution channel. And it will specify as a part of that a delivering plant, as well as other things that you haven't done in your lab like rules about we'll only take orders from this size or more or other rules of that sort now this is an area and I I haven't really figured out where people are making this particular mistake but we've had some people that in going through their lab exercises have tried to sell certain items and they're told by the system you don't have a pricing structure in place or there's other things where the system is not allowing them to sell. 85% of the class doesn't have that issue, but there's been about 15% of the class that's run into it. And and most of it t- tends to trace back to issues in this regard. I could have a material that is defined in the context of my company code but that material has to have views added to it that are particular to a given sales organization and distribution channel to allow that to be sold. Now, what we have actually done, and and where I tend to think the problem is, is a lot of the materials, well, really all the materials that you've worked with this semester, you've copied over. And, And have you noticed the weird lab instructions you see where, like, here's the original material, and here's the other material you're copying it to. And the instructions say, you know, type in your material number, type in you want to copy this material from this company code, maybe from this plant. And then the instructions say hit enter eight times, and then eventually you'll get to the end, and it'll ask you if you want to save, and you say yes. and. You might wonder, why do I have to enter eight times? Why couldn't I just hit enter once and then hit the save button from the very top and be done with it? Well, the reason is every time you enter, you press the enter key, it moves you to the next view to be copied. And so if the lab tells you hit enter eight times, every view is being copied with each of those presses of the enter. So the views of that given material, it might take eight different separate copies before all of the views are populated, and then oftentimes the lab will have you go into one or two of the views, make a change, and then save it. I suspect... But I don't know for sure that perhaps one of the lab problems we've had is people haven't chosen the correct set of views or they haven't hit enter enough times or whatever have you. And so one of the views that should have been copied didn't actually get copied and so the material is not valid for sale maybe in a given sales organization or a given distribution channel or, or whatever have you the key thing about this view is though it tells us okay if you want to buy from us this material we're going to deliver it to you from a given plant now, Another sales organization in our same company code might sell you that material, but they're going to deliver it to you from a different plant we might both share the same plant or one might sell out of the, what is it, San Diego plant and the other one might sell out of the Dallas plant. This is where that's going to be defined and it's going to be defined on a per sales organization per distribution channel basis. We could also specify minimum quantities and it might well be that what this allows us to do is we might say, okay, the Dallas plant will sell you this, but their minimum order size is 10,000 units. The San Diego plant will sell you this, but their minimum order size is 25,000 units, and we can do that. And it might have something to do with the kind of equipment that we use and the way we package things and the way we palletize things or all kinds of other dynamics that could come into play, but this allows us for one material to have different rules about how it's being sold based on who's selling it, what the distribution channel is and things like what plant it's being fulfilled out of. So that's all going to be captured and presented in the sales view. Purchasing view, yes sir. In a sales how do companies prevent from sales? There's not going to be anything, bless you, inherent in the system that's going to block you from doing that. That's why as you think about putting your organization together, that's why reporting becomes very key. A great personal example of that is here at ETSU, there's a huge effort campus-wide going on to try and grow the institution, get get more students to come in. But what the institution doesn't want to have happen is they don't want to um, just move students around and not get new students in. You know, it's great if the Department of Computing gets 25 more students, but if they got those because they stole them all from the math department, then that's not really helping the organization as a whole. In the system, we can keep track of the fact that you know we have students that were in one place and now are in another but we're going to have to have reports or have people supervising this that are actually going to look at it for us because there's there's not really anything in our configuration that would allow us to block certain activities or things of that sort and that's a great point because customers will look for every advantage and so we've got to make sure that as we define things they truly make sense for our company. Purchasing view is relevant for uh, materials management it's where the plant is designated and you might wonder why, why is purchasing relevant if we're talking about, about the sales view and so let me pose that question to you guys, and it's not something necessarily that we have talked about this semester, um, at least not in great detail, but it definitely comes into play here. Not cost accounting and not financial accounting. Those are our two most common answers. Um, How is purchasing relevant to the selling process? It's not that hard of a question. Yeah, for like trading goods, I have to buy them before I can turn around and sell them and so sometimes I will take an order for an item not having it in hand and I'll make decisions about how quickly I can get the item to the customer and other things like that based on what I know about my purchasing experience I know you know you see this with Amazon they'll take an order from you and it says you know we don't have any of this in hand but we know we can ship it to you within two weeks this is how um, that information comes into play Uh, sales we have a sales uh, view related to the individual plant and so that gives us excuse me the ability to keep track of materials as they are being sold from individual plants this is obviously of great importance to us when it comes to things like inventory but may also come into play with things like storage and packaging and things like that. Essentially you can imagine we might sell a given material out of many many different plants but different plants will fulfill it in in different ways. Uh, I can't speak to this authoritatively but I've heard for example that some of the liquid products that Eastman Chemical sells some of their facilities can ship out train cars full tankers. Uh, Some can ship out um, tanker trucks, whereas some facilities can do 50 gallon drums or even smaller packaging. So some plants might be equipped to sell in different denominations, different package sizing, things of that sort. This tells us what the parameters are of selling from a, a given plant. So that's the material master. We could probably spend a lot more time talking about that, but I really don't want to. But I certainly am happy here to, to pause and answer questions you might have. The big idea here is, is what I was driving at a moment ago. We need the ability to take a given material that we sell as a company and not just treat it like a universal thing. We need the ability to recognize that different plants may be set up to make and distribute the things differently. They might be set up to ship it in different ways. They might have different, just practical logistical things that come into play. And so these views and our material master uh, give us the ability to do that. Questions? All right, let's keep forging ahead. Customer master. The customer master is very relevant in the selling process, because this is who we sell stuff to. So if someone wants to buy from us, we have to create a customer master record for them. The customer master record consists of three different segments. We have general data, we have financial accounting data, and we have sales area data. Where have we seen this concept before? This is not conceptually new to us. You guys know this, I know you do, so I'm just going to sit here until someone gets bold enough to, to tell us. Where have we seen this before? This idea of, well here, let me draw you a picture that's actually going to show up on a later slide. We have this, and we have this, and we have this, and this is the general data, and this is the financial accounting data, and this is the sales area data. Where have we seen this kind of thing? Yeah, so what we have here is something that's parallel to it but different. Now remember when we talked about the vendor master, we had general data at the top, we had financial accounting, that was another segment, and then what was the What was the third element? The purchasing organization, okay? So we just have one element of this swapped out because we're not talking about our vendors, we're talking about our customers. And so the general data section of the customer master, like we observed before, it's valid across all company codes. So once we create a customer master, we give that customer a number, that customer is valid across all company codes. Which means that if you were so inclined, and some of you have done this on accident and wind up messing yourself up, you could go in and sell to one of your classmates' companies that they set up as one of their customers. Because once a customer is in the system, it's in there for everybody that might elect to use it. The key here is when my company code makes a sale to a customer we have to capture our financial accounting data specific to our company code. And so that's why the customer master has the universal general data but then it has different financial accounting data for each company code so I could pull up a particular customer master and it might say okay company code one has sold this customer ten thousand dollars worth of stuff company code two sold them nothing company code three sold them eight thousand dollars worth of stuff but every one of those company codes is going to only see the financial accounting data that's relevant for that particular company code. And then I have the sales area data that's specific to a given sales area. So this is the structure that that we're talking about here. Everybody can see the general data and then as I look at you know let's assume that this customer right here is Acme Widgets and they're their customer number is one 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 and so when I pull up customer one 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 doesn't matter how I'm looking at it I'll see that the name of the company is Acme Widgets and they're based in Akron and their phone number is this all of that's part of the general data we all see that Accounting data, if I'm in company code one, I see the accounting data for my company. If I'm in company code three, I see the accounting data for my company. I still see the same general data because everybody sees the same general data, but I only see accounting data for my company code. Same thing here now with sales area. So sales area data is its own individual element and remember sales area is really kind of interesting because a sales area is is actually what what's it go ahead division distribution channel and and sales organization so we conglomerate all of those into a sales area And so for every sales area they're going to have their own little wing off of this as well where information specific to that sales area is actually stored inside of the customer master so it is very much parallel to the concept of the vendor master and two of the three parts of the same but one wing of the upside down butterfly changes because we're not looking at this from the perspective of buying it we're looking at it from the perspective of of selling it questions okay well On the customer master data, and some of this we have talked about in the context of vendors, so it's somewhat parallel, but we have, you know, general data, like I was saying, the account number of the customer, the name of the business, their address. But notice this now, um, the company code data. What's going to be in that little wing of the butterfly? Well, it's going to be designated a reconciliation account. And remember this, this maps back to what? What does this relate to, this reconciliation account? Right idea, but we're selling, we're not buying. This is going to map back to accounts receivable. So we might have multiple accounts receivable we might have accounts receivable industrial customers accounts receivable uh, new customers accounts receivable blah 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 so our, our records our general ledger might have multiple accounts receivable we designate which accounts receivable account this customer belongs to in the company code data. The payment terms that we grant this customer will give them a 2% discount if they pay within five days and then they uh, are net 60 for the balance if they don't take advantage of the cash discount and then how we communicate with that customer. Very logistical things here like their fax number, uh, whether or not we send them letters, things that we have done in the past to communicate with, with that customer, that's going to be found here in the company code financial accounting segment of the customer master data. And then lastly, the sales area is going to have Information about the sales area, information about pricing, information about what currency we deal with that customer in, U.S. dollars, euros, whatever have you. We designate what delivering plant delivers to this customer, um, whether they're a priority customer. A lot of times we think in terms of ABC analysis. Our A customers are our best customers, and so if a customer is an A rating customer, we'll ship out their orders uh, ahead of other customers in the queue, we'll move them to the head of the line, we'll grant them other privileges. That could be listed here. We've talked before about tolerances. They might be different for a particular company. Maybe when they send us a purchase orders, they'll have noted on there no partial deliveries, which means that I have to send this entire order to them in one shipment, and I I can't deliver part of it now and back order part of it now. All of those things that this customer has told me that are important about this order or my business with them, that's going to be captured in the sales area data. Uh, The billing terms, things related to the payment of taxes, this could be things like sales tax, based on where the customer has located. Have you noticed this um, in online shopping? Depending upon where you live here in the Tri-Cities area, when you put in a zip code, a lot of times the online store will come back and ask you what county you live in. That's because that affects who's going to get your sales tax payments and other things of that sort. So we have to note that for our customers that we are selling to. And then this is a, a key element. and. And I have another slide to go with this, and it'll be where we wrap up when we finish this. But partner functions really come into play in the selling process uh, in a fashion that, that we want to spend a little bit more time talking to. So the idea here is we could have one customer, multiple company codes could sell to that customer, or in a given company code, multiple sales areas could sell to that customer. Um, and so it just depends on how we want to structure these things, how we've broken this down in our organization. And so this gives us the ability to, in a very fine-grained fashion, collect all of this, this data up. Last thing we'll talk about is th- this right here. For all of our customers, we have to understand sold-to-party, ship to party payer, and bill to party. You guys have gotten away really easy. When you've put in orders this semester, you've just searched for a given company, and then that's been the end of it. But perhaps you've noticed at the very top of the screen, there's place for you to put in sold to party, ship to party, and so on. Here's the idea: Walmart may buy from my company, and so the sold to party is Walmart in Bentonville, Arkansas. That's who I actually sold to. The ship to party is a distribution center in Asheville. The payer is actually going to be Walmart Consolidated, which is based in, just for the sake of argument, the Cayman Islands. And so the bill in this case also needs to go to the Cayman Islands. We can differentiate these things. The sold to party is, is who we're actually dealing with and they're the big picture entity that's making the purchase, but that may be different as far as where I'm actually shipping the materials because the customer might say, I want you to ship this to this place, ship this to this place. They might have different plans, different distribution centers. And so from order to order to order, I might have different of these designated. So to keep from having to enter this every time, one of the things that I will do is as the customer gives me more and more ship to locations, I'll just add those to the customer master. So that I can say, oh, you want this one to go to your location in Columbia, South Carolina. And I'll pick it from the list as opposed to having to key in all of the information. Same thing, too, with payer and bill to party. A lot of companies will do consolidated bill paying. And they'll tell you, you know, you deal with us as far as us telling you what to buy. But the bill gets sent to someone else and the check will actually be drafted from a company with a totally different name. And it's not because they're trying to dodge the laws or other things like that. It's just kind of the way they've chosen to structure things within their organization. And so it is not at all unusual for the materials to go one place and the invoice to go to a totally different place. And so every time we... we add a customer to the system, and every time we generate a sales order, we, we have to designate these things. Now the good news about it is notice this says these are mandatory. The good news is if I designate one of these things, like you put in your customer 1101, All of these others are assumed to be the same unless I designate otherwise. And I can go in and designate otherwise. There are also other partner functions that are optional, like I can put contact people down and I can put actual names of personnel and phone numbers and other things of that sort. This gives me a way just to keep track of, okay, who was it that I talked to at this particular customer? This is, A very, very lightweight version of allowing me to do some customer relationship management. I don't have all of the details I would have in a full CRM system, but it does let me keep track of key personnel at companies, um, their phone numbers, their email addresses, and other basic facts about them. That can be stored as a part of the partner functions on the customer master data record. Well, this looks like a really good place for us to stop for today.